Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone, Sakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. My friends, before it is that we begin today's episode, I would just like to thank each and every one of you for listening. And I would like to ask that if you do enjoy the show, to please make sure to go ahead and leave us a review, whether on Spotify or Apple or wherever it is that you get your podcast. It really is something that helps us out. Also, our next Trova trip launches on March 1st. And guys, we only plan on doing two per year, but everybody wanted to do German Christmas markets. Oh my God, markets. everyone did. So we are doing... Munich, Salzburg, and Vienna for German Christmas markets. The trip is going to be from November 25th to December 1st. And yeah, make sure you sign up because it was in high demand. And in addition to that trip that we are doing, Italy and Peru are still available due to an unfortunate cancellation. There are a couple spots left for Italy. So I know it's last minute, but if you all want to get on all that action, then by all means, go ahead and click the links down in the description and sign up. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. So I'm sure that many of you, before even clicking on this episode in the first place, have already seen the title of it. We're talking about spies in the CIA. And as for what inspired that, Gabby, okay, so for anyone who is listening right now, and I don't know if you've actually seen this, we went and saw the movie Argyle this past week. And I don't think that I have been that thoroughly entertained by a movie since I went and saw Barbie. This past <laughs> year. Like just this sheer wild ride from beginning to end, even th- with the things that I could predict and twists, there were so many more that were just fun. Modern movies just in general are not really very fun. And so that was just so refreshing. But it got me thinking, okay, here's this thing. It's this super spy. This spy that is like the greatest thing the world has ever seen and fighting a secret shadow organization that is hell-bent on honestly I don't even know what the whole point of what they were trying to do in the first place was but naturally talking about spies made me think about the CIA though fun fact for anyone who's actually uh, unaware of this that we're definitely going to mention this in the first place Gabby did you know that for many years the CIA sucked yeah they (laughs) I mean you can see that from all of their declassified documents listen I am obsessed with reading declassified CIA documents because it's like, oh, I wonder who did this absolutely fucking unhinged thing. Oh, wait, it was the CIA. Mm -hmm. Right. Unhinged shit. Yeah. Unhinged shit is probably the best way that you could possibly ever phrase that. That is absolutely true. And when we were going and looking at this, right, I was thinking about all the different assassinations. I was thinking about all the varying different plots that they've been involved in. 
And there is one in particular that kind of stood out to me because even to this day, it is still something that is a little bit questionable. Like everyone knows of the CIA and like, you know, Cuba, Fidel Castro, all of that, right? But what about the Congo? Not nearly as many people are aware of what was going on with this here. Our story that we're going to be talking about today is something that goes all the way back to the 1960s. But the CIA is something that has been around and fumbling around since 1947. And oh my God, what fun stories do we have to tell? Thanks to, as you said, all of those declassified documents that they have. Like, look, if this wasn't founded, we would not get a new declassified document every few years telling us about some absolutely unhinged program or operation that was carried out that just really does seem too unreal to believe. Exactly as you said, it is the gift that keeps on giving. So first things first, then, a short history of the CIA. As I'm sure that many people are aware, the 1940s were not exactly great for the majority of people in the world, as World War II was going to break the balance of power in the world and in the end would leave two major powers to influence the rest. You had the United States and, of course, the Soviet Union. And, of course, both sides wanted to keep an eye on the other, as well as make sure that their influence was the one that was going to take a hold of countries that were arising out of the ashes of the previous colonial empires. The way that you would do this, typically, was with large amounts of money and simultaneously with intelligence services. You know, doing the things like uh, trying to support your kinds of candidates, making sure that the ones that possibly were more hostile to you did not perhaps have the chance to achieve power. Things like this. And in the case of the United States, the National Security Act of 1947 mandated a major reorganization of the foreign policy and military establishments of the U.S. government. The act is actually the thing that would go and create many of the institutions that presidents would find useful when formulating and implementing foreign policy. One of these things being the CIA. And the reason for that is that at the end of the 40s and going into the 50s, the Cold War had begun. Now, interestingly enough, when we were talking about this, for the first few years of the early Cold War, that being between 1945 and 1948, the conflict that is going on here, like, okay, you know how we have Vietnam, we have the Korean War, we have all of that? Well, in this case, it's not really conflict yet. Everything was more political than actual military, if that makes sense. Both sides were squabbling with each other at the UN. They were trying to get closer relations with nations that weren't committed to either side. And both were trying to present their differing visions of a post-war world in which, can, can you guess, they were, uh, it was the one in which they were in charge. And by that, I mean each respective one. By 1950, though, certain factors had made the Cold War an increasingly militarized struggle. As an example, one of the key things that happens like, okay, Geb, you know how with the, um, uh, the, like the UN Security Council, how like China is a permanent member on it? Yes. So the thing with that is that that was a highly contentious thing because the China of today that is in there is not the China that was awarded a seat at the UN Council. Like that was, that was something that was supposed to be what is today Taiwan with the Republic of China back when the previous government controlled it. So it's something that really, really screwed things over because initially when the United States and, and like the Western powers, when they were setting up things with the UN, they're like, okay, 
this is awesome. We're going to have Britain. We're going to have France. We're going to have us. And because we totally helped and saved China, we're going to have China on our side as well to make sure that the Soviets, which are also in power in here, are not going to be able to do nearly as much because it's going to be four versus one. Then the Republic of China fell. Well. And the People's Republic rose. So yeah, the whole uh, 4v1 thing very quickly became 3v2, and it was way closer. And uh, that, that wasn't very comfortable odds. All kinds of different efforts were put into trying to gain as many allies as possible, especially, especially with what was going on around the rest of the world. Okay, so the pronouncement of the Truman Doctrine, right? The development of Soviet nuclear weapons all these varying things were building up tensions all over the world. And in the occupied region of Germany, how everything was split up between the different powers, this was not a good situation. You had the outbreak of the Korean War. You had the formulation of the Warsaw Pact and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You know, rivals like NATO's. So you had Warsaw and you had NATO. And these were the rival alliances that essentially... That is what composed, that is what built, that is what made the Cold War's military aspects, the whole dimension of it. U.S. foreign policy reflected this transition when it adopted a position that sought to contain the Soviet Union from further expansion. And by and large, through a variety of different incarnations, the containment policy would effectively be the central strategy that the U.S. would utilize over the course of 1952 all the way to the end of the Soviet Union in 1991, with containment signifying exactly as the name implies. The purpose was to contain the Soviet Union, to not allow its influence, to not allow communism to spread. And so it's that issue of containment that the Congo comes into play. So, okay then. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, oftentimes referred to as the DRC or Congo, and formerly as Zaire, that is the second largest country by area on the African continent, and it is the richest in mineral wealth. I mean, I cannot exaggerate to you just how fabulously wealthy this region is, at least on paper, for like what it has in natural wealth. European Exploration Administration would take place over the course of the 1870s to 1920s as the region was fairly rapidly colonized during that time. Prior to that, pretty much only trading posts and things had existed, but the Congo territory was formally acquired by Leopold, who was the King of Belgium at the Conference of Berlin in 1885. I know that this is going to be going up onto YouTube, and so I know that I am limited in what exactly it is that I can say, because... Do you remember that one conversation that we had quite a while back, Gabby, where you learned exactly what went down in the Congo and you were just mad that day? <laughs> I started yelling at him. And it's so funny because he just walks into the room and he's like, what are you yelling about? And he's like, oh, that's Belgium. Belgium? Belgium, yes. And I'm like, I, I was so mad at him. He's like, I'm not from Belgium. I'm like, but you could be. <laughs> no, I'm not. 
<laughs> I'm not from Belgium. That it, is basically, it, was, it was an interesting time. Oh, but yes, that, that whole thing happened. And the reaction, though, is completely understandable because for anyone who is not aware of what was going down in their history, um, the, the Belgium of the day in their ownership and running of the Congo as a private fiefdom of the King of Belgium meant that he could do basically whatever it is that he wanted. And this resulted in horrible abuses of the population. Like Leopold would begin various different development projects through the region, such as railways that would run from the coast of Leopoldville, which is now modern day. Uh, it's like called Chinsasa. I, I know I'm probably butchering that, but that is where it is going. And from there, you would have all these different projects that were aimed at not improving the country, not at helping the people. No, th this whole colony, the entire reason for its existence was that it was designed to extract as much capital as possible from the colony. The, the big export that was going on during this time and would continue for many years was rubber. And Leopold would make a fortune from this rubber. But it would come at great cost to the natives. And if you're wondering as to how big of a cost I'm talking about here, to understand the scope of how dangerous this region in Africa would eventually become, and why to this day there are many hard feelings, between the years 1885 and 1908, it is estimated that around 10 million Congolese people would die as a result of exploitation and diseases. Which, yes, that is, of course, that's a very big grouping, especially when you say exploitation and disease. Because, you know, you could have the majority of people die out from disease, and that did not mean that they were abused. But simultaneously, what ends up happening from this is that the way that it was all structured and crammed together, and the disease, one of these things can include malnutrition, that is, a disease that is registered here. A government commission would later conclude that the population of the Congo had been reduced by half during this time period. And so to enforce rubber quotas, as an example, the force publique, the FP, would be called in to maintain order. The army was created not to, you know, defend the country, but to control and effectively terrorize the population. The FP, as an example, would cut off the hands of individuals who did not fill their rubber quotas. The weird thing is that the Congo still has modern day slavery, though. Yes. But now it's for rechargeable batteries. Yes. Gabby, this is quite literally one of the most mineral rich provinces in the entire world. So shouldn't the people who live there um, have the wealth? They kind of do. And they, but they kind of do by virtue of the way that the government and everything is run. This is where it's. Wow. Apparently there's modern day slavery, human trafficking, child labor. Yes. Over cobalt. Yes. One of the most crucial elements that is necessary for those batteries. Hey everyone, Sakuyi here. And before we get back to the show, I would like to thank today's sponsor, Rocket Money. For those of you who don't know what that is, I literally do not know how, considering how many advertisements I have done for them already. Uh, just hear me out on this. Rocket Money is a service that is going to help all of you. It is something that I personally have used for years. It is a personal finance app that not only will help you do things like cut out your extra expenses for things that you had subscribed for free trials to and then subsequently forgot about because it will catch those and remove it, but simultaneously, it is also something that will literally budget out everything. It will show you where all of your money is going, which I can 
tell you for this right now. I have been horrible about that in the past. But rocket money is something that quite literally saved us. It is something that has helped us throughout all these years, and I've been using it ever since it was a service known as Truebill. So I'm not going to go over here and sit you and tell you things that I don't personally believe because this is something that I will absolutely stand by. So please, by all means, stop wasting money that you actually need and go to rocketmoney.com slash everything. That is rocketmoney.com slash everything. Trust me, it is really going to help you. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, Rocket Money. For those of you who don't know what Rocket Money is, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that helps to find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, to monitor your spending, to help lower your bills, and it does all of this in one place. I am saying this right now, but Rocket Money has been a huge help to my family. It is something that I have personally used for years, and over 5 million users have also been helped and saved an average of $720 a year. With all the different subscription services that I sign up to to get free trials to varying different things for news sites and other organizations that I need, in order to do research for this show, it is very quickly and easily going to get out of hand for me. And there have been multiple occasions where I have accidentally paid for additional subscriptions for things that I end up not needing, and Rocket Money has thus been able to save me and catch this and stop me from overspending. In addition to all of that, easily one of those valuable aspects that my family uses and my wife really drills into me what it is that she needs is the ability to budget our finances, and that is something that Rocket Money has helped us immensely with. So I'm saying this right now. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash everything. That is rocketmoney.com slash everything. Yeah. Also for smartphones. Yeah. Also, gold is toxic to touch and breathe. Yes. But hundreds of thousands of the people who mine it are touching it and breathing it in day and out. There's mothers with babies strapped to their backs all breathing in the toxic cobalt dust. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I correct me if I'm wrong on this because I know that you're looking at it right now. If this is the case, what they end up doing is that there are like the mining companies that own this stuff in here, and it's like it's not foreign companies; it is the companies that are actually within that region that control the things. But what they end up doing is that by international law, they are not supposed to be employing people to be harvesting with like pickaxes and stuff by hand. They're supposed to be using proper procedures, and this is something that is tested. But the companies illegally under the table end up paying pennies on the dollar for that cheap labor to be able to do stuff. So it's not quite slavery, but it's so they have literally no other options. Industrial excavator derived cobalt and cobalt dug by women and children with their bare hands. Yes. And they are paid next to nothing. So to the point that it's almost tantamount to slavery because there's nothing else. Because many of the people in the region were farmers and the land effectively got destroyed by like heavy industrialized mining, which poisoned the land. They couldn't do much. At least, okay, I know I need to do a whole video on that. That's probably something that's going to be coming out here in the future on the History of Everything YouTube page, but that is just awful. Anyway, going back more into the history of how it kind of got to that point in the first place is that it was awful. There was very ex a lot of exploitation. It was not good. And the Belgian parliament didn't want to do anything, but they were forced to actually bow to international pressure and free the country there. Like not, not free entirely is for independence, but change it to be not a private fiefdom of the king, but actually a proper, like properly maintained colony. And from then on, it would become the Belgian Congo. 
not just the free state, as it was called. The thing about this is that initially, Belgium was completely unprepared to actually govern a colony, much less one that was as huge as the Congo. Remember, we're talking about a territory that is the second biggest country in all of Africa. And eventually, Belgium would manage to institute some reforms. But there's a little bit of an issue. You know how there's that whole thing with colonies and how expensive they are to actually maintain? Yeah. So they have valuable products. They have valuable things. The problem is, is that they're still very expensive to build from the ground up because it's not like you're taking over a country that is fully developed and modernized and you can just adopt all of its systems or take its systems and extract the wealth from it. You have to build every school, every road, every mining facility from the ground up. And that's expensive. And so what Belgium wanted the Congo do, to do was to pay for itself. So that cycle of exploitation for minerals and agricultural goods, that is something that would only continue during that time period. Not as bad, mind you, as it had been under the king, but it was still not great. Railways, ports, roads, mines, plantations, industries, all of this had to be constructed, and many of the things were constructed with forced labor, you could say, especially in places that were particularly rich in certain minerals, like Katanga, which we're going to be talking about here later, but that is incredibly rich in copper. Europeans would flock to the urban areas that were rapidly developing and getting rich off of this stuff. But the majority of the people, the Congolese, the natives, they still largely lived in traditional rural villages. Even the educated Congolese, they couldn't really do much in comparison to the Europeans that were there. They lacked the political power and ended up living in an almost apartheid-like society where the Belgians had absolute power and they couldn't really do anything about it. Resistance against this lack of democracy would over time grow, and in 1955, the westernized mission-educated Africans called Eules, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of in the first place, initiated a campaign to end this inequality. And one of them was an individual by the name of Patrice Namumba. Now, we're going to be talking about him later, but we're not exactly talking about it right now. And a lot of people are going to wonder, okay, we spent all this time talking about the Belgian Congo and its background. What about the CIA? When did they get involved? So, okay. In the early 1960s, right? In, well, not in 1960s. It is literally the year 1960, the very beginning of, the, of like the whole decade. Belgium has finally agreed to independence for its colony. Shortly before independence, in May of 1960, the Mouvement National Congolais, which is the uh, MNC, that is the party that advocated national unity and was led by Patrice Lumumba, who was an extremely fiery orator. He would just rally massive amounts of crowds and build, I, I don't even know what the words that I'm using here at this point, fervor, excitement, zeal. He was hugely... Frenzy. Fre yes. That's a great word, actually. He would instill fr a frenzy. Or no, you know, he would uh, inspire to frenzy. He basically got people really excited. He got the people going. Yeah, literally. That's exactly what would happen. And this was something that was quite scary for Belgian authorities. Even if, at first, for a long time, he was actually quite friendly towards Belgium before eventually uh, being very anti-Belgian, anti 
colonial force. It's a little bit complex. He ends up getting thrown in prison, and that's where he kind of becomes radicalized because it's a whole other story behind that. Anyway, they end up winning the election, right? The parliamentary election. And Lumumba gets appointed as prime minister, and Joseph Hasavubu gets chosen to serve as president. The funny thing about this is that neither of these guys, despite the fact that, you know, Lumumba was a very skilled orator, had any skill or not skill, experience in politics. Do you know what Lumumba was for the longest time? You can just hazard a guess at his job. What Lumumba was? Yes. Literally just pick any kind of job of a standard job that you can think of. You are, you know, in terms of categories, not too far off, though, I guess some people are going to wonder when I say that he was a mailman. How is that close? What I mean is for like an everyday job. It's not like he was, you know, uh, it's not like he was a a investor or anything like that. He didn't work for a bank. He wasn't part of like any kind of city council or anything like that. Next time a pipe bursts in the house, guess who I'm calling? The mailman. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I realize I sound really dumb when I said that there. Okay. It was just funny because... I thought when I said plumber, you were going to say like electrician. Yeah, no, okay. There's a very clear reason. For anyone who is wondering as to why this could possibly be so funny, I'm now imagining a mailman coming to our house when our pipe burst in our house this uh, previous two weeks and completely flooded our downstairs. You know, maybe they could have stuffed it, just stuffed it with many, many unanswered letters that could have just clogged it up and stopped it from spilling out all over into my wood and ruining my downstairs. Anyway, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. No. He spent the past three days doing flooring. So he gets up and we work during the day. And then until like 2 a.m. we've been laying down flooring. Yeah, it's 1.43 a.m. in the morning right now that I'm recording this. So Right. <laughs> so it's, it's been real. But Congo had it worse. Oh, no. Absolutely. Oh, God. I, I cannot so even let's, compare let's anything that I'm doing. That. Okay. So, yes. The issue that would happen here is that they not only did they not really have any experience, but simultaneously, the Belgian authorities were not very happy about them uh, taking power because they were a little bit too radical for Belgium's taste. They, um, they, they wanted to institute many different reforms, and Belgium feared that these individuals would, or the party, I guess, end up becoming hostile towards the Europeans and others. So while the Belgian Congo would achieve independence on June 30th, 1960, within days of this occurring, the provinces of Katanga, led by a guy called like Moise Chombe, and South Kasai, they had seceded and violence in this area erupted against Europeans. United Nations troops were very quickly rushed in to stop the violence. But when Lumumba tried to order to use the United Nations troops, the peacekeepers, against the Katanga separatists, like separatists, uh, like, almost like his own private force, the UN withdrew its military and economic support of the regime. And with nowhere else to go, guess who Lumumba asked for help? The US? No. Worse. The, the Soviet, Soviet Union? Union. And that's worse. 
because the U.S. knows that he asked for help from the Soviet so Union. So now they're going to get involved to overthrow him, right? Ah, uh, Or kill see? him? Are they going to go assassinate or overthrow? Because they have like two moves and they use it every time. No, see, 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 there, there's many different ways that we can say there's, there's a bunch of different things. They actually tried multiple different things and others they even planned for, but never got around to. And I we're like gonna to get picture into them as like, you know, when you go out to a bar and there's this guy who very obviously is always at that bar trying to pick like a girl up. And <laughs> okay. I feel like if you watch that guy every single weekend, you'll see him do the same like two moves. Like he probably will do one move one day and the other move the other day. So like, you know, you know freshen up. Just exactly. alternate between. Yeah. That's kind of like the CIA. I feel like with their little government overthrows. <laughs> Just looking for the slightest hint of communism. The hint yeah. of desperation. Of, and then like, they're needing like, attention. okay, are we going to go in there and like work them up with our little assassination? Or are we going to just <laughs> work do them up with a little assassination? Just a little cyanide capsule for spice, you know? <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> so, all right. Here's the state of the U.S. at this time. By August of 1960, right, at the exact time that all this is going down, U.S. President Eisenhower was 69 years old. Nice. nice. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And he was nearing the end of a second term. He was running out of steam and at this point didn't really give a shit about what was going on. You know that term of like a, like a lame duck presidency? Like that whole thing where they just don't really do anything? I don't want to talk about it. Okay. That was basically him at this time. Like, look, everything that had been going on with the Cold War, like the crisis in Cuba, Korea, all the stuff that happened in Hungary, the Suez, everything, he dealt with all of it, all right? He had to deal with all these varying things, not to mention at the time he'd, he'd already had a heart attack, he had a stroke, he had an intestinal surgery. The man was old, he was tired, and he just didn't want to do anything anymore. And so after the uh, a U-2 spy plane was shot down over Russia in that like that year's May, this ended up completely ruining an East-West peace summit in Paris. And the president just didn't care anymore. He resigned himself from his duties, not like literally, but just mentally, you know, he checked out and just went off to play golf. And he did this quite literally almost every day. He is so real for that because genuinely. That's what I would do if I could just mentally check out. I'd be like, bye. I won't be playing golf, though. I'll be playing The Sims 4 <laughs> or reading spicy romance books. But, you well, know, I think of all people, you can probably relate this to, like to this the most. When I was doing the research for finding the stuff for this episode, I found this quote from him. And I just imagine your president said this to you, quote, I wish someone would take me out and shoot me in the head so I wouldn't have to go through this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is a direct quote that he huffed in July after a National Security Council meeting brought him bad news about like Cuba and the Congo. Oh my God, he's me. I am him. So the man was like, he's the definition of an like an old crotchety man. Like he he was grumpy. He didn't want to do anything he anymore. Was only sixty nine years old. I'm yeah. so sorry. Why? One of his nicknames that he got was uh the terrible tempered Mr. Bang. He once launched a golf club at his doctor so forcefully it nearly broke the man's leg. 
Why was that golf club near his doctor? Because he threw it at him. Yeah, but did he take the golf club to the doctor's appointment? You know, that's a great doctor? question. Like, was he being seen by a private doctor in a White House? So he just had his golf clubs next to whatever bed he was on? I don't know. It's hey, all strange. considering that he was golfing almost daily, he probably brought it with him. He stayed strapped. <laughs> he stayed strapped. <laughs> So, yeah, he basically was. So you have this ill-tempered, crabby, grouchy old man who doesn't want to do anything anymore. And into all of this, you have all these issues that are going down in Africa and Latin America and everything else. And he does not like the changes that are occurring in Africa because you could describe this on one hand as being winds of change. But to him, these were not simple winds. This was a storm that was brewing. It was a hurricane. It was a typhoon. It was something that was going to create many more problems. Because, look, even before independence and everything that was going down in Katanga and all of the stuff with the Congo, Eisenhower didn't think much of the Congo. He, he thought that it didn't really have much of a chance to be able to develop. He thought it was just a backwater and a trip that the prime minister, remember Lumumba? that he made a surprise trip to America in July of 1960. And this thing was, oh my God, it was a complete disaster. Holy crap. I don't even know if I put in all the details of in here of what happened. Like, okay, he wasn't afforded a high level reception, right? He failed to garner any kind of military assistance that he sought because the whole time when all this was going down in Katanga and all this, the first person, he, like Lumumba, did not go to the Soviet Union first. He went to the United States to ask for help. And was just straight up ignored. Now, you may think from the get-go, like, oh, my God, wait, this sounds like a horrible faux pas. Why would you do that? Why would you ignore a head of a state? Why would you do anything like that? There's a very key reason. He showed up. And you're going to wonder, well, what do I mean? He showed up unannounced. <gasps> you know how states' visits, like, usually work? You have all these big, important things. The president or prime minister of a country is going to travel to someplace. Hey everyone, it's Takuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They don't just do that. They can just pop by? No, they don't just, just go like, by. I for... was in the area and I just thought Hong Kong looked beautiful this time of year. No, unless there's some kind of major event or something that goes down and they have to do something. That, that is, no, they don't. 
Generally speaking, state visits are things that are planned months in advance. So when he showed up off the plane in the first place, they had no preparation for it whatsoever. The president had no meetings scheduled with them whatsoever. They had no hotel accommodations that were scheduled for him whatsoever. When he showed up, I remember reading this thing on it here that they had. So the Congo is a newly founded country, right? Yep. You know what happens when a person shows up at a, a or like not even a person, but like a head of state shows up at a place, how they have a band out in front of their plane or whatever, and they're playing the national anthem. No. <laughs> and then they do that. Not like the American one. Okay, they do that. that. That's the thing that they do for international politics is that like they'll typically, so this is one of the things for big state visits that they can do that to honor the country they're coming from. The Congo straight up did not have a national anthem yet. So they were just playing random music when he showed up because they had no idea what to actually do. It feel like that sometimes. <laughs> Literally. So anyway, that visit that he had launched in there was an absolute disaster. And the president just thought he was uncouth didn't think of him as being anything really special right and so Lumumba could mobilize crowds with his radio speeches but his efforts at face-to-face diplomacy tended to alienate people because he just didn't actually prepare to do anything with them whatsoever he was a mailman not a politician he didn't know how to speak to other politicians And so in the meantime, the American ambassador to the Congo was known to make jokes about Lumumba being a cannibal. Like, just imagine that you're saying about these kinds of things here to another head of state or not to them directly, but you're talking about them. Maybe they were joking. Yes, they were kind of joking, but also at the same time, they heavily looked down upon Africans and the region. Like there is a real element of racism that is involved in that. Like they are actually looking down on people. And so... He looked down upon Lumumba as being a possible cannibal. The CIA sees everything that is going on in there in the Congo, and they think, okay, there are some serious concerns about commie influence in the country that could be happening here. Now, Lumumba, I'm going to tell you this right now, he was not a communist. At least there never was any proof that he was. But generally speaking, politicians regarded him as being a useful pawn for the Soviets and communist forces. And this time then, that we are getting into the situation, Lumumba goes and gives a go-ahead to put down the second secession in South Kasai, another mineral-heavy province that we first mentioned earlier. Congolese troops went on a rampage during this time. They murdered many different South Kasai civilians. Many Europeans were killed during this fighting. Many innocents were lost, further entrenching the idea that the central government could not be trusted and was going to be more dangerous to themselves and the people than any actual enemies. And so feeling abandoned by both the United States and the United Nations, Mumba, at this point, made the appeal to the Soviets for military aid And they eventually did agree. They did send him aid. But what they sent was barely anything. Like, yeah, some equipment. Yeah, a little bit of money. But no overwhelming force. The Soviet Union did not want to get involved in this mess. But the fact that they got involved at all. Oh, no, that was going to be a problem. And so it is then that in August of 1960, the White House, galvanized by Lumumba's turn to the Soviets, has authorized a secret CIA scheme to, quote, Replace the Lumumba government by constitutional means. What, whatever that actually means. 
literally it's the CIA getting involved in the government. So when they say by constitutional means, you know, that could literally be anything. Because even if you rig an election, guess what? What? There was still an election. So, no, I mean, so okay. it's constitutional. Yeah, I guess. Okay. I've never rigged an election, but if I do. You know, you know what? Fair enough. Let me know when that happens. We can document it. We can cover it. I'm sure that would make a great episode. Don't worry. You'll be well aware of which election I rigged because you would be president. I'm worried about that. You didn't hear what I said, did you? No. I said you would be president. Like, Gabby, that's what I'm saying. Against your will. I would be worried about that. That's the thing. Like, if I somehow bumbled my way into office. Uh, at some point I will run for politics in the future here. And I know that there's going to be a, uh, a, a, a clip of this a, exact, a clip of podcast. this. There will also be a picture of me in a maid outfit. Cause remember from what I've done here earlier, that'd be a on few my YouTube pictures page. of you in questionable outfits. Yeah. Um, I'll leak you're the source of like 90% Literally. of them. <laughs> I didn't say I was rigging it for you to win. <laughs> no, no, wait a minute. No, you didn't hold up. <laughs> So, okay, that same month at a cabinet meeting, Eisenhower made comments that some would interpret as a call for assassination. Now, at this point, I am directly pulling this from a Politico article that wrote about this exact sequence of events. And I'm going to be reading this aloud because this whole thing is talking about it's not even paraphrasing. It's just the writing about the note taking that was going down during this meeting. At 9 a.m. on Thursday, August 18th, the president walked into the cabinet room of the White House, a high ceiling chamber off of the Oval Office and a, with a fireplace, a portrait of George Washington, and views of the Rose Garden through arched windows. He sat down in the leather chair designated for him, slightly taller than everyone else, and called to order the weekly meeting of the National Security Council. Joining him around the massive mahogany table were 20 other men, including the director of the CIA and the secretaries of defense the Treasury, and Commerce. The agenda that day was Africa. Each participant was given a map of the continent and a bulk of the meeting was devoted to the Congo. The Undersecretary of State, Douglas Dillon, the only man in the room who had actually met Lumumba, led the discussion. The deterioration in Lumumba's relation with the UN portended disaster. The UN was the vehicle for US policy in the Congo, and if the organization was forced out of the country, the Soviets might swoop in. Dylan considered the prospect altogether too ghastly to contemplate. This coming from uh, or Maurice Stans, the director of the Bureau of the Budget, would weigh in next. By virtue of his big game hunting habit and his Belgian-born father, Stans was what passed for a Congo expert at the White House. And after declaring that independence had come to Africa 50 years too soon, which, mind you, the fact that this happened in 1960, right? So that means that they're thinking, hey, like the African countries should not have been independent until 2010, basically. 2010? Yeah, you realize 1960 was only 64 years ago. I can't do point. that big of a math. Like that's not a long time. And so after declaring that independence had come to Africa 50 years too soon, as I said, he argued that Lumumba's true goal was to drive out the whites and seize their property. What? Some people did that. Well, I mean, some actually did. It really depends upon the region of where they were. But it, it varies. That wasn't really the case here. But there were many people that argued that that could potentially happen. Alan Dules, the director of the CIA, jumped in to allege that Lumumba 
was already in the payroll of the Soviets. Dun, dun, dun. He wasn't, but they alleged this. The notes from that meeting would barely conceal Eisenhower's anger. It was simply inconceivable that the UN would be forced out. And when Dylan meekly suggested that it would be hard to keep UN troops in the Congo without the permission of the Congolese, Eisenhower shot him down. What the world was contending with was, quote, one man forcing out of us out of the Congo, Lumumba, supported by the Soviets. And it's at this point that everything gets really questionable. If as though nothing that I was talking about at this point was already questionable. The president may have, at this point, made a fateful utterance. Robert Johnson, the official note-taker for the meeting, would notice the president turn towards duels. Then he would recall, quote, President Eisenhower said something, I can no longer remember his words, that came across to me as an order for the assassination of Lumumba. Fifteen seconds of stunned silence would follow Eisenhower's remark as the room digested the apparent directive. It was one sentence and a somewhat euphemistically phrased one at that, but Johnson would never forget the shock that he felt at that moment. When Johnson returned to his desk to type up his notes, he asked his boss what to do with the comment and was told not to mention it. The only written record of that order that appears to survive comes from the notes of Jared Smith, the State Department's Director of Policy Planning. And in it, he admittedly, well, he would admit that this was an inconclusive piece of evidence because in margins of his legal pad, he would write Lumumba, and besides that, a big bold X. That's it. This entire conversation of everything that we're talking about here at this point, Gabby, literally all of this is why, to this day, there is no actual definitive proof, it seems, that Eisenhower ever actually ordered for Lumumba to be assassinated. But the CIA doesn't really need orders to kind of start messing around and doing things now, do they? What? <laughs> yeah. See, many historians to this day still debate as to what exactly would, would mean. Dylan would claim that to this day, there is no clear-cut order at the meeting, but he would admit that there was a general feeling of the U.S. government at the time that Lumumba had to be gotten rid of. So the CIA does what the CIA does best, and they start to meddle. And boy, do they do such a great, great job meddling. Exactly. CIA-sponsored protests start disrupting Lumumba's speeches, and the entire time that this is happening, the agency begins preparations to kill him. Wait, how do you sponsor a protest? Do they just pay people to go protest? Basically, or you pay things that are organizations, political organizations. Imagine this. You know how there's a lot of different things for, like, uh, climate activists, animal rights activists, etc., and how a number of those things require... Uh, you have signs, you have megaphones, you have all these different kinds of things that are used. Well, you don't necessarily need to pay directly those people, but you can sponsor a protest by paying for all of these signs to be made. You can pay for all this equipment or material that the protest would be using. You can pay for trucks that would transport them to locations. There's many different ways that you can actually do these kinds of things. And the CIA would get involved doing stuff like that. You see, it's not just the protest, though. They also were trying to prep to kill him, which was the bigger thing that was going on. And it's at this point that the CIA's top scientist is brought into play. 
His name was Sidney Gottlieb, and he was asked to prepare biological materials and have them ready on short notice for the possible use of an assassination of a, and here's the part that really kills me, unspecified African leader. Unspecified. Open-ended. It hadn't been decided really yet as to what was going to happen. No, no. And it was in case it was decided to go ahead with the mission. Yeah. Just if they felt like it. If they felt like, no, literally, if they felt like it. That's the whole point. Like, I'm laughing with it right now, but the whole thing is just kind of ridiculous. But that, that's what it was. So the scientist would go and check with the Army Chemical Corps at Fort Detrick. And uh, there he would go and find substances that would, quote, either kill the individual or incapacitate them so severely that he would be out of action. And he chose one that was supposed to produce a disease that was indigenous to that area, meaning of Africa, that could be fatal. He also assembled some accessory materials like hypodermic needle, needles, rubber gloves, gauze masks, you know, simple stuff like that. And about that time, he was told that the leader in question that he possibly was going to be ordered to assassinate was going to be Lumumba. It had been decided to go ahead, and he was now supposed to take all of these poisons that he had to Leopoldville. By the time that he ended up arriving there in September, the situation in the Congo, though, had changed. Lumumba was no longer in charge. Disgusted by his disastrous military campaign, which would degenerate into a massacre of more than a thousand civilians, and alarmed by the use of Soviet planes, trucks, weapons, and military advisors, the president. Kasavubu dismissed Lumumba as prime minister. When Lumumba persuaded parliament to reverse the dismissal, the Americans and their allies persuaded a young colonel by the name of Joseph Mobutu, the number two man in the army, to take control of the country instead. Colonel Mobutu would then promptly oust all of the politicians and expel the Soviet and Czechoslovak diplomats, along with the military advisors and their equipment. But the USA didn't really think that the new regime was actually going to be able to hold up. They didn't put much stock in them. They feared that the situation at any moment could reverse and that Lumumba would be able to return to power with the backing of the Russians, that the Soviets were going to try to put him into power as a puppet. Five days later, Gottlieb was going to arrive in Leopoldville with his poison kit. And ironically, it's at this moment after Lumumba is out of power after he has already been kicked out, 12 days after Mobutu seizes power and nine days after the Soviets were expelled, that the order to assassinate seems to come about. He's no longer in charge, but they're like, shit, we need to kill him so that he doesn't potentially get back in charge. This is what? I know, right? Yes. So the really ironic thing about this, though, is even if the order actually did go through, the poisoning was never going to take place. It didn't happen. The United Nations Security Council was called into session on December 7th, 1960, to consider Soviet demands that the UN seek Lumumba's immediate release, because he'd been arrested at this point. The immediate restoration of Lumumba as the head of the Congo government, the disarming of the forces of Mobutu, and the immediate evacuation of the Belgians from the Congo. Soviet representative Valerian Zorin refused U.S. demands that he disqualify himself as Security Council president during the debate. Lumumba would 
flee house arrest in the Capitol in late November of 1960. He would leave the Capitol in a convoy of nine cars with his wife, Pauline, and his youngest child. But instead of fleeing as fast as possible to the Oriental Province or Oriental Province border, where soldiers were waiting to receive him, he delayed. Do you know what this man did? Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. He went on a goddamn campaign trail. He acted as though he was running for election and started going to all these little villages along the way, stopping by them, touring them, and having conversations with the locals. He was a real man of the people, which, in one aspect, is admirable. It is also could be said to be extremely stupid when you are running for your life with your family and armed men are chasing you. And so on the 1st of December, Mobutu's troops would catch up to his party as it crossed the Senkuru River. Lumumba with his advisors had made it to the far side, but his wife and child were captured. They had still been left on the other side and hadn't been able to make it across. Fearing for their safety, Lumumba would take the ferry back, against the advice of his advisors, who, both fearing that they would never see him again, bid him farewell. Mobutu's men would arrest him, and he would be moved to Port Franqui the next day, and from there, flown back to Leopoldville. Mobutu would claim Lumumba would be tried for inciting the army to rebellion and other crimes, but there was never really going to be a trial. Following a UN report that Lumumba had been mistreated by his captors, his followers threatened on December 9th, 1960, to seize all Belgians and start cutting off the heads of some of them unless Lumumba was released within 48 hours. On January 14th, 1961, Larry Delvin, who is a Central Intelligence Agency, so CIA field officer, he was informed of Lumumba's escape from house arrest and then ultimate capture by Mobutu's forces. Lumumba was then transferred to South Kasai, whose leader was intent on murdering him, and he was then supposed to be transferred back from South Kasai to Kasanga because the leader there had vowed that, guess what, he was going to murder him. This wasn't going to happen because Katangan soldiers and, Belgian, and a Belgian officer would end up executing him along the way, only a few days later. And when I say execute him, I mean beat him, drag him out into a field, and just shoot him right there. There was no ceremony. There was no fancy things. There was no crazy. There was no drawing him up in front of a crowd and then executing him that way. Nope. 
just dragged out into a field and shot. And that is it. Larry Delvin's cable informing Washington of the transfer was not reached in time. So it didn't matter if they were going to try and poison him or get him along the way. The Belgians and the Congolese people already took him out first. The CIA did not have to do a thing. But now they were going to end up being more involved in the Congo than ever. And you're going to wonder at this point, okay, we're 50 minutes into this podcast. What the hell? What is going on? Why is the CIA only just now really getting involved? Well, here is the thing. The CIA was going to provide the new government with covert funds, all being part of a general program of covert support using the previously established, not attributable to the United States channel. In addition, the covert program would include organizing mass demonstrations, as they talked about from the very beginning with the whole thing for the protest that they were trying to sponsor, distributing anti-communist pamphlets, and providing propaganda material for broadcasts. You know, simple things to preach a message, that sort of thing. This was called the special group. Initially, then that is what it was. And then later on, it would be called the 303 committee and the high level interdepartmental group set up to approve and supervise covert operations had made its first approval of major funding to strengthen Mobutu's de facto government after he had taken everything over in order to stop Lumumba when he was still alive of coming back in and taking over. So the CIA is at this point supplying money to the government directly. Like all these other little, or not, it's technically indirectly, but they are directly giving funds in order to be able to try and prop up and support the government that is currently experiencing a lot of difficulties and a potential civil war that could break out. And this would start on October 27th, 1960. That would continue for the next like seven or eight years. This would become, and you all are going to hear by the end of this, the one of the longest and most expensive CIA operations in history. See, after the special group's authorization in October of 1960, there was a certain pattern that came about from this. One of the Congolese leaders would urgently ask the station for funds to avert some kind of imminent crisis that was about to break out, such as the establishment by Lumumba supporters of a rival government in Stanleyville, or maybe an army mutiny. Maybe there was a terrorist organization that was trying to overthrow the government. Something would happen. An expenditure of at least some of the request funds was almost always authorized. Periodically, the special group would meet and approve the overall funding and direction to covert operations. And on February 14, 1961, following a near mutiny of the Congolese army and police, the special group would approve an even larger request to the Congolese government through clandestine channels. President Kennedy's special assistant for national security affairs, McGeorge Bundy, would report to the special group on June 21st, 1961, that the president had approved, with a CIA recommendation, with the Department of State concurrence for a substantial contingency fund, which for anyone who doesn't understand political speak at that point means, hey, you've basically been given a blank check to spend whatever it is that you need or feel like you need. And Gabby, if the government feels like it needs to spend money, do you know what it's going to do? Spend a lot of money. It's going to spend a lot of money, which is basically what it ends up doing. 
The fund was going to be used for covert political action programs to help elect pro-U.S. prime ministers and governments during the upcoming parliamentary session at the University of Lavinium, scheduled to convene in late July. On August 2nd, 1961, the Congolese parliament would then approve a predominantly moderate government that was headed by Prime Minister Cyril Adula. On November 22nd, 1961, the special group would approve of additional funding to strengthen the Adula government as a moderate force and eventually build a new cohesive national policy party. This would carry the funding through fiscal year of 1962 and avert two parliamentary crises a proposed censure of the then Foreign Minister Bomboko in June, and a vote of no confidence in the government in late November. In 1962 as well, the CIA would also begin supporting and supplying air operations as a propaganda tactic to show the potential of the Congolese military to its citizens, to secessionist leaders, and to rebel factors. The United Nations peacekeepers would provide tactical support to Congolese forces and mercenaries fighting the insurgents. The Congolese Air Force would only exist because of U.S. support and assistance. The Congolese Air Force had a variety of aircraft and manpower that, honestly, if it wasn't for the United States, they wouldn't have had in the first place. Like, there's the crazy thing. Like, okay, so what we're talking about right there, Gap, is that literally the only reason that the Congo had any kind of real Air Force because it was being supplied essentially by the United States. And the whole reason that they gave it is because, oh man, there's all these people that are fighting on the ground, right? There's all these... Like, they're, they're fighting from village to village. This is terrible. What can we do to show them it's useless to fight? What if we just show them that we absolutely dominate the skies and can blow them up at literally any second? That could work. So they started supplying them planes so that they'd be able to show that they had air, like air superiority so that, that way people would be less likely to rebel against the government. So they just gave them a bunch of giant planes? Oh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there, there was a variety of different things that were going into it. I'm pretty sure I even have the numbers in here later on for exactly what it is that they did. It's just, it really is insane. In March of 1963, the embassy would warn that terminating U.S. financial support would probably result in the fall of the government. And so responding to that warning, the special group on April 25th would approve funding for fiscal year 1964 for the continuation of covert action programs supporting the government. The Congolese were then subsequently warned, however, that the United States would not continue to crash ad hoc funding that it had provided in the past and wanted instead an organized program that would actually allow the formation of a national political party that would act as a political instrument in the elections. Basically, again, to explain political speak, um, yeah, guys, listen, we're, we're happy to give you money to uh, support, you know, the building of a national party that could actually govern the country. But it's been three years since we've been doing this, and we can't keep bailing you out with more money. You're going to need to actually form a government and stop the bullshit. <laughs> like, like you're smiling at me right now here, because now that's basically how governments operate in there for just ad hoc things. But that's really what it is that they end up doing. And so they would need further support, but they weren't going to be getting anymore, at least not to that same kind of degree. On November 6, 1963, the station in Leopoldville would submit an additional budget to support the establishment of a national political party, and this would be approved on November 8th. On April 24, 1964, President Johnson would authorize the Department of Defense to provide the Congolese Air Force with six T-28s, 10 C-47s, 
and six H-21 aircraft, plus a six-month supply of parts and ammunition. The special group would approve a proposal on May 28, 1964, to provide covert support to the Congolese Air Force for maintaining the six U.S.-provided T-28 aircraft and a minimal helicopter rescue capability. In addition to continuing the operation of the current six T-6 aircraft, the program would be further expanded with, with the 303 Committee approval on August 24, 1964, when the rebellion throughout the eastern half of the Congo threatened the government's survival. So they gave it even more stuff. And this, I think, is going to reach the point that is arguably one of the most, not most, but one of the more embarrassing moments in U.S. history. Gabby, you know those moments where you're seeing a politician that is blatantly lying on national television and you know that they're lying they know that they're lying and it's going to come out later that they're lying, but they're just trying to cover up or maintain or like, do damage control. I know. Okay. That's I've so, seen lying on national television sounds like the worst possible decision. I think I've seen you way too make. many YouTube compilations of different things here then for all the different moments. Like it's not even something that would occur to me that someone would do because lying on the internet would be terrifying. Lying on national news. What? Yeah. In this case, it's not necessarily their fault because, again, remember, this is the CIA that is involved in a lot of this shit. And so, so much stuff gets not reported that um, it creates a little bit of a problem. So, two US, or two U.S. civilian pilots managed the operation and training, and they would not just do that. They also managed some reconnaissance and combat missions in Quilu, which is in that eastern region during the spring of 1964, or not quite into the eastern region, but it's around the area. The thing about the Congolese Air Force is that they really wanted these pilots to participate in the actual combat, and their support would actually really help Kivu. Like, this was a hugely important region in the Congo, and they were very valuable. But when the State Department received questions about, you know, what was going on, they answered because it's the State Department. They, they're like, what? no, we didn't have any U.S. American civilian pilots flying in combat positions. That's insane. It's ridiculous. The conversation with the press before actually confirming the facts ended up being a massive point of controversy because, like, like look, the information was incorrect, right? Like, the State Department had to act quickly to correct themselves because you have this person, the CIA is obviously not telling the, C the State Department everything that, that they're doing. So the, the State Department is up there saying like, yeah, no, no, we don't have any people there. And then it's almost immediately proven that that is false. And you think, okay, they should have done something quickly to alleviate this, to reveal that, okay, they, they do know kind of what is going on now is a misspeak. It was like some kind of accident, right? No. Instead, they lagged. They didn't say anything. And the next day released information that the state now knew that some American civilians had flown combat but had violated no U.S. laws. The press would portray the incident as a quarrel between the State Department and the CIA, and this led to an agreement between the U.S. and Congo that there was going to be no more American pilots flying in operational missions in the Congo. 
On June 1st, 1964, a revised budget was approved for the project for fiscal year 1964, following former Katanga Premier Moise Chisombe's appointment as Prime Minister in July of 1964 and the fall of Stanleyville to rebel forces in early August. The program would continue to provide limited support for selected Congolese leaders. On June 30th, 1966, the program would be formally terminated on the recommendation of the CIA and the Department of State officials, as it was no longer necessary to engage in large-scale political funding in the Congo. However, limited funding would continue into 1968. Essentially, it wasn't necessary any longer for them to do as much as it was that they had been doing. But I went and pulled the numbers from this. This was one of the longest and one of the most expensive CIA operations in history. And so to that end, I'm going to list out some numbers here for you so you understand this. For anyone who is listening, the special group, or the 303 committee, they approved an aggregate budget for covert action in the Congo for the years 1960 to 1968. And this totaled approximately $11,702,000 with political action being 5.8 million, the air program 3.2, the maritime program 2.5. And when you account for all of that together, that is approximately, adjusted for inflation, $80 million today, making it one of the most expensive and extensive covert operations in all of American history. Mind you, there have been more expensive, and I think, Gabby, what do you think about this idea here at the end? And I'm sure that for anyone that is listening to this in the comments right now, if they lasted this long into the video or podcast, what do you think about the idea of covering the most expensive or, or longest covert actions in history? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how big that would be. I need to do some research because I'm wondering right now, this, when I was doing the research, said it was one of the most. If this was $80 million, you're not talking about waging war. That's a covert operation. Those are way lower scale. How the hell does something cost that much? So what is the most expensive covert operation? I should probably look into that. And I should probably do a video or something on it. (laughs) Anyway, my friends, that is the end of the story of the CIA in the Congo. With all of its absolute bullshit. They meant to go in and assassinate a dude, did not get to assassinate that dude, instead had to support the government afterwards and effectively serve as a piggy bank, trying to stabilize a country for many years until the state would actually be able to support itself. But that is really it. My friends, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate all of you, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.